0: A listeners note, Sydney and I are not medical professionals, so we recommend that you do not take our conversation as medical advice and instead talk to your healthcare provider. With that being said, on with the show. When you hear about challenging environments, you likely first think of areas of overwhelming heat or sheer cold, like the deserts or Arctic tundra. However, stressful environments can be found within our very bodies, such as the creation of low oxygen or hypoxic microenvironments where tumors develop. As cancerous cells multiply, they consume oxygen at a rate faster than a body can locally supply it. A new study suggests that this hypoxic environment increases the number and migration of cancerous cells by increasing receptors for a specific neurohormone called neuropeptide Y. Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph and how the Work and affect Lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today is special guest and PhD student, Sydney Passetta, and we'll be chatting about her recent work on neuropeptide Y, or NPY, and its receptors and breast tumors, and how this work can help with treating cancerous cells. Welcome, Sydney. Hi. To orient yourself to our guests, and I guess to get you more comfortable, How would you describe your research and or the work done in the UNIAC lab in general?
1: Um, So our research focuses on low oxygen environments and how they affect cancer progression. So if you imagine a tumor, a solid tumor, it actually does a really bad job at recruiting new vasculature. So as you progress into the center of the tumor, those cells become more and more hypoxic or have less and less oxygen available to them. And traditionally, these would maybe be thought of as dead or non-functional cells, but they're typically the most aggressive cells in the tumor microenvironment. So we're trying to understand what makes these cells unique in that environment. And maybe we could use more targeted therapies towards those cells and not something as like generally harmful as like chemo and stuff like that.
0: I guess it's a good point when you think of hypoxic cells and cells needing oxygen to develop and grow you expect that you know if there's no oxygen they shouldn't be able to multiply so quickly
1: yeah but they're actually very aggressive they're very metastatic they have a lot of like migratory and proliferative like capabilities so that's interesting because it's unique and hopefully it's like not found in the rest of your body i mean the rest of your body sits at um what we term physioxia so normal oxygen in the air ambient oxygen is 21 percent, but mm. most of your tissues are significantly lower than that and the range is usually from like two to eight percent depending on the tissues depending on how far away it is from your uh, blood vessels all that kind of stuff obviously the lungs are like the most oxygenated but your brain is like actually really low so just depends on the area of the
0: body so why did you decide to go into this research was there a particular moment you're like oh yes i'm gonna study cancer cells and hypoxia
1: (laughs) No, actually, I really just liked Jim as an advisor. I went to Queens for my undergrad, um, and then I was looking at a few different universities. I was looking at like U of T and Guelph, and I met with Jim, and I really liked him. My research in my undergrad was on plant immune systems, so completely different, But and I also worked on like gut polysaccharides for a summer too, so I've just done a bunch of different things, and I just really liked um, the lab environment more so than
0: anything. It's good to try a bunch of different things. Otherwise, how would you know what you know you want to do? Yeah, exactly. So speaking of research, you recently published a study titled Expression of Hypoxia Inducible Factor-Dependent Neuropeptide Y Receptors, Y1 and Y5, Sensitizes Hypoxic Cells to Neuropeptide Y Stimulation. So to help kind of guide our audience through that, can you briefly describe what neuropeptide Y does in the body and what is so special about Y1 and Y5 receptors specifically?
1: Um, Well, neuropeptide Y is like the most abundant neuropeptide in the nervous system. So it has like a bunch of different um, functions, one of which the most classically explored function is actually feeding behavior and eating regulation and stuff Mm. like that. But it also acts in vasoconstriction, cellular proliferation, and a bunch of other like developmental processes. So the reason why we're actually looking at y1 and y5 specifically is because they're the most ubiquitously expressed amongst breast cancer cells specifically (laughs) um so there's a whole family there's six of them uh, one of which is non-functional in humans and then the other ones just aren't really highly expressed in breast cancer
0: so the most promising targets in other words yeah exactly so as part of your research just to clarify for people we didn't just Get a whole bunch of cancer patients to working with breast cancer cell lines. So MCF7 and MDA MB231. What's the difference between these two types of cell lines? And what are some benefits of working with cell lines versus, you know, grabbing a random cancer patient from the hospital and saying, hi, do you want to be part of my study?
1: <laughs> well, actually these cell lines are derived from humans. Um, so they all originated from one donor human at some point in time, but they are immortalized cell lines, so we're able to work with them in the lab continuously by doing something that we call passaging them. So we're able to keep them alive. The difference between the two cell lines that we chose is that the MCF sevens are uh, ERPR positive. So estrogen receptor progesterone receptor uh, positive okay. yeah. and uh, MDAs are triple negative. If you've heard that kind of buzzword for breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer is typically viewed as like a very aggressive metastatic form of breast cancer. So we, chose two different cell lines in order to understand if the phenomena that we're observing is specific to one kind of like cellular microenvironment or if it can be kind of generalized across different breast cancer cell lines
0: so the different cell lines you use in your study responded to hypoxia and dmog which is a chemical used to mimic hypoxia at different time scales so you mentioned briefly that these are coming from different individuals with different types of breast cancer like the triple negative for example so what do you think cause these differences in time between your two cell lines?
1: Honestly, that's really hard to say. they the cell lines themselves are quite different. And like I said, the triple negative ones, the MDAs that we were talking about, mm. are typically viewed to be more metastatic and aggressive and have like a completely different phenotype than the MCF seven. They're quite different cell lines in general. So they have different uh, signaling pathways that are activated within each of them, generally speaking. So th- the difference is not surprising and you would expect there to be like differences amongst them.
0: Stimulations of the receptors Y1 and Y5 generally increase mitogen activated protein kinase or MAPK signaling in the different cell lines when exposed to hypoxic conditions. So considering the roles of signaling in gene transcription and translation within cells for our more lay audience using your DNA to make necessary proteins and function in the body, What does increased signaling mean for cancerous cells?
1: So MAPK signaling is a really classically explored signaling pathway that a lot of different people have looked at for a lot of different reasons. But its primary role is um, important for developmental processes. So it's often activated like during embryogenesis and growth and development and all of those really important processes. But like the, um, I guess you could say the the catch 22 about cancer is that cancer is typically a disease of normal developmental processes Mm. gone wrong. So they're normally kind of put into overdrive. Um, So proliferation, migration, all of these uh, activities, cellular activities are actually normal and good for regular developmental processes. But when they, these processes become hijacked and they're, happening at a much more frequent rate than they should be, or maybe there's um, checkpoint proteins that aren't functioning properly, so they can't kind of rein in these processes, that's when cancer kind of develops. So by looking at Like this pathway, we're just basically saying, can we inhibit or um, accelerate these different downstream effects? So the the MAPK um, assay that we did at the beginning was, can we actually affect directly this pathway? And then what is the output of that? So that was like the the proliferation and migration assays that were done later on in the paper.
0: Oh, okay, that makes sense. It kind of leads into like the next question, in that obviously they mentioned before. MPY or neuropathic Y, and obviously it's receptors and MMP, sorry, MAPK signaling, is very important in terms of regular function within the body and within regular cells. So if cancer treatments reduce the ability for neuropathic Y receptors to normally function, because you're trying to suppress this overactivity, what would this mean for non cancer cells within the body?
1: So we wouldn't really look at it from that type of perspective. Um, it would be more in terms of a like a... A specialized therapy instead of a chemotherapeutic. So mm. there's a whole like a whole new field of personalized kind of medicine and therapy for for cancer, that's exploring different ways that we can do pointed drug delivery instead of irradiating someone with a, like a chemotherapeutic or radiation therapy or and stuff like that. So um, there are some labs out there that are looking at bioreductive Uh, pro drugs. So basically, when they get into an environment with a different oxygen concentration, like hypoxia, that drug would become active, or Mm. using nanoparticles for delivery or direct like intratumoral injections. So we would be looking more at that, like specified drug delivery format rather than affecting like the entire body.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask you, like, how do you keep it localized in the body? Because, you know, transport within the body, it can depending on what type of drug it is, could be passed easily across cells. So I guess it's kind of more of a trying to control for hypoxia and take advantage of the hypoxic nature of cancers.
1: Yeah, that's what we'd be hoping to do. And that's kind of like the ethos of our lab in general. So like this project is one branch of our lab, but our lab actually looks at very, very um, distinct projects. So there's one that looks at um, alternative splicing within the ribosome. There's another one that looks at a process called ISG which is kind of more immune system driven in a lot of cases. So yeah, there's there's like a lot of projects in our lab, but it's mostly understanding the biophysiology of the hypoxic microenvironment and what Mm. is, like I was saying before, kind of what is unique to that and how we can maybe target that.
0: So we kind of mentioned this briefly before and that you're focusing on Y1 and Y5 because they're highly prevalent within breast cancer cells. And Mm -hmm. so you focus on those receptors as well as nrp y itself and look at possible treatments. So how applicable would you say your research is towards studying other cancers and trying to address the receptors there by focusing on Y1 and Y5?
1: Yeah. So it would just depend on the expression levels of Y1 and Y5 in those other breast cancer and those other types of cancer rather it, cause it, they would all be unique. And uh, there are other cell lines that do express Y1 and Y5 to varying degrees. It just depends on the context um, and the person really, but anything that's highly innervated by the central nervous system mm-hmm. will have neuropeptide Y stimulation going on, but it's just like the a proportion of expression of these two receptors, maybe be um, in contrast with the other ones, et cetera.
0: My brain just kind of casting back to me earlier in our conversation of how there's a different level between, you know, a hypoxic environment and like a physiologically relevant hypoxic environment. So when you're raising your cell lines, does that mean that a normal environment is actually hypoxic compared to a regular environment already? Sorry if that's a little confusing, but you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: so this is actually a really really important question in science and there's a whole project in our lab that focuses on physioxia that range that i was talking Mm. about that's actually biologically significant within your tissues so most cell like most research that's done with cell lines raises those cell lines in incubators Mm. at 37 degrees which is what the internal temperature of your body is but they don't account for um the ambient gases so in, in an incubator those cells are raised at 21% because that's what ambient oxygen levels mm. are so actually what another project in our lab has found is that that 21% oxygen range is actually quite stressful for cells it's not their normal uh physiologically relevant environment so it's actually pretty stressful for them and if they we have a and another incubator where we can control what the um, oxygen concentration is. And in those more biologically relevant oxygen concentrations, cells experience uh, less stress in general, like there's less DNA damage um, and other processes going on. And then the reason why we choose hypoxia to study is because again, it's relevant to the tumor microenvironment. So uh, hypoxic tumor is basically a tumor that's around one percent oxygen or less
0: okay it's all it's all relative to a regular person you're like oh yes this is totally normal at 21 percent. but to your body's cells it's a hyperoxic environment you're causing excessive oxidation causing dna damage so obviously something we want to avoid
1: Yeah, exactly. And, but most research is done at this 21%. So the way that we understand basic cellular function is for the most part done at 21%. So our lab is kind of bringing research to the table that shows that maybe this isn't, you know, the most relevant concentration to raise them at in general. And like, maybe, I don't want to say that everything we understand about how cells function is at least slightly different from, the traditional mm. view of it, but it could be, you know.
0: Do you think there will ever be a moment where you're 100% sure of the connection between neurotransmitter receptors and cancer? Where you're like, oh, yes, this is the driving factor. We should focus all our work on trying to control its expression.
1: I don't think we should focus our work on controlling its expression, but the one assay in the paper that was called, uh, like, Chromatin immunoprecipitation basically showed that some hypoxia responsive elements, they're called HIFs, they directly, they're transcription factors and they're also translation factors, but in this context, transcription factors, um, they directly bind uh, Y1 and Y5 in their promoter regions, showing that like it is a hypoxic response to upregulate the transcription of neuropeptide Y1 and 5 in the context of these, these two cancers that we look at. So. Yeah, so definitely they do. They are uh, important for playing a role in that, that environment.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it kind of more of like a positive feedback loop where obviously you don't want to have an excessively hypoxic environment within your cells, with the fact that because of hypoxia, you get hy- hypoxia-inducible factors binding to your receptors and causing stronger effects. So more and more migration, more and more movement, and possibly causing more cancerous cells and hypoxic environments to develop. Is there a way to stop that? feedback loop
1: <laughs> yeah so um that's what we're trying to understand with our follow-up paper we are currently working on a follow-up paper right mm. now and so our follow-up paper is trying to understand if we can downregulate these biophysiological responses like the migration the proliferation all that kind of stuff if we can downregulate it by antagonizing the receptors so mm. in the first paper we were basically stimulating the receptors and we're stimulating them both individually and as a whole, there was the MPY um, general agonist, and then there was the Y1 and Y5 specific agonist. So Mm -hmm. we were like, does hypoxia drive um, the production of uh, Y1 and Y5 in breast cancer? The answer is yes. How is that happening? Well, it might be through the HIST directly binding Mm -hmm. and increasing their transcription. And then can hypoxia and the like receptor specific agonists combined together to further drive like proliferation, migration, and all those kind of things. And the answer to that was yes. So in our follow-up paper, we're trying to understand if you block those receptors, mm-hmm. can you antagonize those responses in any way or maybe slow them down?
0: So developing new treatments is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah.
0: In general, I think cancer research can be relatively difficult to complete and kind of sell the importance of working on specific say cell lines versus working with individuals and even like we just discussed earlier the importance of how you're going to hold those cell lines in terms of temperature and dissolve oxygen levels so what is one thing you wish listeners knew or would kind of reconsider how they think about cancer research
1: um, honestly, I think the most important thing it, for people to understand is just how expensive um, <laughs> yep. research in, yep. in general. Like, research in the molecular sciences is extremely expensive. All the reagents we have to use, all of the personnel that we need to use, and all that kind of stuff. Um, our lab, for example, is um, a really well-funded lab and we're like a medium to small size lab and we go through tens of thousands of dollars in, of things a month and that's in a normal regular month. Mm-hmm. And so I obviously am a big proponent of adding money to like science research and funding and all that kind of stuff. But the funding climate in general in science is actually pretty poor. Mm-hmm. I think less than 10% of grants, like of people that apply to grants get awarded them and like the government doesn't really put it as um, a top priority to fund science and stuff like that. So it's, it's funny, because we're actually very small scale here. But what we do every day is quite expensive. So scale that up to like the big corporations and stuff like that. And obviously, there's a reason for privatization and stuff. So um, yeah, so I just think it's important to recognize that the more money that goes into funding these these projects, the more forward movements we'll make in our understanding of just the world in general, you know.
0: I'm not sure how often you read about research in the news, but often you read through the comments like, how could it be spending so much money, millions of dollars on this research? Like, well, it's because rages cost a lot of money. Companies know that. And you know, you've have no, you've no option. You have to buy from them. So they jack up the price and what can you do, which is yeah, just it, inherently expensive.
1: It's true. It's true. And most like qualified personnel are like very underpaid. I will say most postdocs, mm-hmm. such associates are very underpaid as well as grad students. So I, I'm just a really big proponent of like, um, understanding like where the the money is going. Cause yeah, people are always like, oh, we raised like a million dollars for like a, a you know, a, a breast cancer walk for, for research or something like that but mm-hmm. that might fund like a medium lab for like maybe a year you know and when you put it into that kind of context it sounds like so much money but then when you break it down it's like it goes very fast so yeah, yeah i think um, funding the sciences is just like super super important um all areas of the sciences not just like biology or molecular biology or anything like that but all areas of science deserve deserve more funding i think
0: <laughs> so a question i like to ask all my guests because obviously things don't always go as planned So if you go back in time and change one thing about your study, what would it be and why?
1: I don't know. Because we took a long time to publish this. Like, um, I've been working on it for, like, I'm entering my fifth year now. It was started before I came to the lab by a previous postdoc. And we did, like, six months of revisions. So I feel like there was, like, a Mm. lot of thought put into the project. Um, It came off the backs of that postdoc's previous postdoc. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would really change much. We're, I just feel like we're exploring and trying to understand what's going on more so than having like a, an end goal, really. We don't have like an end goal or a timeline. So the follow-up paper is more exploration of understanding how these things are working and,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's it for me. There's going to be a couple questions I've taken from social media. And our very first question is, at what age should I be more wary of getting breast cancer? Does signaling activity change with age? Does it become more abnormal, for example, and contribute to becoming a more breast cancer risk?
1: Yeah, so signaling does change with age, and that's why cancer is often associated uh, with it as a disease of aging. Um, there's a much higher incidence about amongst those who are elderly or aging um, in general, and the reason for that is is just because uh, those normal biological processes that are happening at all times in our in our cells go are hijacked, are not working functionally, are um, working abnormally, and that's why cancer develops in the first place. So we have cancer cells in our bodies at all times. Um, our immune system is just really good at recognizing them, and um, getting rid of them. But as you age, your immune system becomes more preoccupied or maybe less robust than it used to be because you have a lot of other things going on. Um, And some of those cells kind of like escape notice sometimes, and then that's when they can develop into, you know, a mass of cells. And then all those cells kind of develop into a tumor and and et cetera. So yeah, definitely cancer is a disease of aging. Um, It's also sometimes just a there are genetic associations as well. Like whether your one protein is maybe prone to um, mutations that would make it maybe non-functional or hyper-functional or whatever. Um, but I, I don't think there's like a specific age. I think, you know, lifestyle factors also play a role. Um, mm-hmm. So just like maintaining a healthy lifestyle and um, I, there's a lot of research that also shows like your stress levels and mental health also play a role in the in the development of disease states and stuff like that. So I think hmm. um, just generally leading a healthier lifestyle and um, stuff like that is is definitely beneficial. I
0: should have never really thought about it before that probably everyone has cancerous cells mm-hmm. in their body. <laughs> like obviously, you know, just the sheer number of cells in your body, some of them will be cancerous, but... It's a little sobering.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's uh, it's a lot of people maybe don't realize it, and you know, um, and there could be like whatever unforeseen circumstance that maybe your immune system just doesn't detect whatever's going on in that exact moment. But so. <laughs> <laughs> take your vitamins, your multivites.
0: <laughs> Eat healthy, exercise, get enough get sleep, sleep. All, all yep, that is important. <laughs> yep. So our next question is are there other symptoms of breast cancer I should be aware of other than a lump? Do you think that it'll be easier to measure neuropeptide Y and receptor levels in the future as a symptom of breast cancer?
1: Um, So actually currently the neuropeptide Y family is used as an imaging tool. So yeah. So they basically um, attach molecules that could be imaged and then kind Mm -hmm. of send them through and then see how much you have in your breast cancer usually you're diagnosed with breast cancer at that time but yeah it is used as a diagnostic mm-hmm. tool currently i don't know if like sheer levels would maybe ever be used as a pure diagnostic tool but they are definitely used in in imaging and stuff like that so yeah
0: i guess the problem is that like you mentioned before it can vary between individuals on in your lifestyle as well as your genetics yeah. so unless you have a really good baseline so you're like measuring it every year your entire life leading up to one day you have a really high spike. You're like, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And as part of our follow-up paper, we do take uh, resections from cancer patients and normal patients as well Mm -hmm. um, and kind of compare them. And they do tend to have more uh, higher expression of Y1 and Y5, but that's TBD in the second paper. But yeah,
0: you're holding secrets back (laughs) from us is what you're saying. And so our last question we have, Do you think your work will replace other forms of cancer treatment like chemotherapy? How long do you think it'll be before it's more widely used or talked about?
1: Um, I I mean, I think the hope would be that we don't have to use something as aggressive as like chemo and stuff like that, because that just basically kills all the cells in your body and hopes that you Mm. irradiate like what whatever is the, you know, the cancerous hub, right? But the problem with cancer, of course, if, if cancer, if the problem with cancer were just a tumor, it would be able we'd be able to surgically remove it and every patient walk free and yeah. be fine right it's it's those um those single cells that kind of migrate away from the tumor um in microenvironment, and then establish themselves in other tissues so that word like metastasis is kind of like a huge a negative buzzword i suppose you could say for cancer so mm. if we can like understand how those cells in particular are functioning and maybe target those a, a bit more effectively that would be really promising for research in general um and like cancer research in general so yeah i think we would hope to just generally move away from things that would you know make people otherwise very sick and frail and stuff like that
0: all right so before we end if there's someone listening who say maybe an undergrad or in high school and is thinking about what they want to do do you recommend they also go into cancer research or mm-hmm. what 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 words of encouragement or advice would you have for these people?
1: (laughs) I think as scientists, we're all just like curious. I mean, I know for myself, like most of my friends who are grad students don't necessarily care about the specific thing that they research. I mean, some do, but I would say for the most part, Mm. most of us don't. I think we just enjoy um, the curiosity of science. And, you know, for one moment in time, you're the only person in the world that knows that result or knows that like, thing it's true
0: you're the foremost expert for you know however long it takes you
1: but like (laughs) even like as you're reading you know an assay or something like that or or you know waiting for Mm -hmm. results to come out you are the only person in the world that knows what those results are and what they might mean so I feel Mm -hmm. like that's like you know that a really exciting intangible experience with science um so yeah like I don't I don't think most of us really I don't want to say we don't care that's not the word i'm trying to use but like we're just like
0: it's one component yeah we're
1: just like excited to understand things about the world and it doesn't really matter what that those things are
0: and so with that we come to the end of today's podcast a big thanks again to our guest sydney Posada for joining us today griffin cast is brought to you by your host me michael Lim, with editing assistance from ian smith if you're hungry to learn more about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's S-C-R-I-B-E, Scribe, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uoguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at UofGCBS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Upbeat, The details in the show notes as always. And until next time, stay curious.